The way that we travel and experience the world is in part shaped by our identities. Our experiences can be impacted by our ethnic, racial, gender, and sexual identities. And today we're learning what it's like to travel as a queer couple. I'm Erin, and this is Alpaca My Bags, the podcast where we talk about responsible travel. Okay, before we dive in, I think it's important to preface this convo by letting everyone know that I identify as straight, and therefore I can't speak to the experience of sexual identity-based discrimination. I am here to learn. In this episode, we're focusing mostly on LGBTQ plus travel from the perspective of a queer couple. I wanted to note this because LGBTQ plus travelers should not be lumped into one homogenous group. We've released other episodes covering experiences of travel within the LGBTQ plus community. And if you want to check those out, we've linked them in the show notes. Okay, so today we're chatting with Chris and Alex. They are a queer traveling couple based in New Jersey, and you can follow their adventures through their Instagram community. Welcome, Chris and Alex. Hey, thank Hi, you. Hi, thank you for having us. <laughs> okay, so I've followed you both on Instagram for ages now, which is at burrito and tortilla. And I have to ask you the meaning behind the handle. Can you give us the origin story? <laughs> Yes, we absolutely can. We met, um, we went to the same university, but didn't know. So we were on a student film set because you have to do a film thesis for our like film program at our university. And we literally met that day. And, you know, it's a big crew. There's a lot of, you know, parts involved in filming, like even a student film. So there weren't enough, you know, bedrooms for everyone. So like some people had to bring sleeping bags and crash in the basement. And I was one of those people. (laughs) And then this girl comes down the stairs and just starts picking on me and like making fun of me like relentlessly. First of all, I don't know her. Second of all, I'm like a sophomore or like junior in college and I'm like insecure. I'm trying to figure out if I should put on makeup before I go to bed because I don't know who half of these people are. And she's literally making fun of me in my little sleeping bag saying that I look like a burrito. She's taking pictures of me. and I just met her. This is obviously deep seated trauma. Because it was also like it was days of it because we were down there for like a few days. And then everyone on the film set kept calling me Burrito. Like, my name was no longer Christine. Like, I was only Burrito. That was all that existed. (laughs) To this day, people still call me Burrito. And so it kind of made sense when we started dating that, like, if I was going to be Burrito, like, what would she be? Like, the Burrito kind of everything's already in it. So we decided that she was the tortilla to my Burrito because, like, she keeps me together. She keeps me safe. And together we make like a very delicious meal. I don't know. Unless Aww. there's trauma. <laughs> for me cute. But so that's kind of how we were like, oh, burrito and tortilla. It was just like fun nicknames for each other. And then we didn't really realize like what community we were signing up for when we made our account. So then it was just like, oh, wow. Like now we are burrito and tortilla to everybody in the world. <laughs> I love it. That's a great origin story. Um, So I know you're both travel addicts. That is why you are on this show. So I wanted to start by asking you both about your favorite trips. What was your most memorable trip or destination to date? Chris, you can start. So my most memorable one like that we've had together was actually last year in October, we did a really adventurous trip to Arizona. And that trip kind of like, I feel like it changed me as a person. It was one of those where just the experiences we had were so vivid 
and so personal that it just like blew me out of the water because we were there for like a few days and we saw like all these different places and cities. We did Phoenix, Flagstaff, Williams, Page, like we saw the Grand Canyon, Antelope um, Canyon, Horseshoe Bend, like we hit all of it and we did a lot of hiking and that was like the first national park we did together. The Red Rock views are like so amazing and I've gone to some of those places when I was a kid so revisiting them like as an adult was this whole other experience like we literally also did glamping for the first time like we stayed at under canvas at their Grand Canyon location we had like a little fire inside our tent and like you could see like the stars at night we heard coyotes and that was so scary but so cool at the same time (laughs) all you could ever want and it was just such like we didn't know if we were going to make it but we did (laughs) I also just want to second that we are not athletic to begin with. We're just more like outdoor enthusiasts. So that trip literally just kind of like hazed us. Speak for yourself. I did sports growing up. I I consider myself (laughs) to be athletic. (laughs) And what about you, Alex? What is your most memorable trip? Honestly, it was actually before we started just tandem Instagramming. We had gone to England together back in 2017. I don't think we've ever really like talked about it all too much on our Instagram, but we had both studied abroad separately in the same program at different years. So going back and visiting our campus and visiting London together was just, I mean, it's just, it was just so profound in the sense it's just like we both knew all of these places and how familiar it was, but to see it together and like just connect those memories, it was, I mean, very wholesome experience. Wow. That's so interesting that you guys ended up at the same university without ever meeting each other. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like the universe tried very hard. The because, universe like, tried very hard. There were so many instances, and we actually had like a lot of mutual friends, but still somehow like only ever remember encountering each other like once. <laughs> okay, I also really love how Alex, you call it tandem Instagram, <laughs> tandemgram. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, one more question about your coupledom. How did you figure out that you both loved travel? Because you met in a film set. So clearly, like, you were both into film. But when did you realize that travel was something that would become a big part of your relationship? From the onset, I feel like we had a lot of conversations where we just mutually loved traveling just growing up. (laughs) I mean, no, I I agree with what you said. I think it was just always came up in conversations because we both have such like a travel background. Like we would be dating and like you'd be going to Disney with your family or like I would tell you about like the RV trips my family took when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just became so natural. And the first like big trip we took together was also another film set related thing where we went and we shot in like around Albany. And that was like a big moment for us where we stayed in a hotel like for the first time. And like we were just like, oh, like, you know, there's so much conversation to have in the car. Like we really like are vibing, like this is going well, like, you know, we're traveling the same way. And then just from there, we were like, oh, well, like, let's do Boston next. And then it was like, okay, let's road trip to Nashville for the eclipse or like, let's do this, let's do that. And it was just like, it always like went well. And we found out that we traveled the same way. So we Mm. just kept doing it. Just the way we interact with one another and just realizing that we just travel so well together. I mean, that was just like, the bow on top. My mom used to say to me, if you can travel with someone for more than a week, then you know you've got it. 
So we talk a lot on the show about identity-based travel, which is basically just like how our identities impact the way that we experience travel. And so we're going to talk today about queer travel. And I wanted to start by asking you how you identify yourselves within like the, because everyone says LGBTQ+, but there's also the term queer. Where, do you, where would you place yourselves within these umbrella terms? Well, I personally identify as gay. The The verbiage I use is uh, soft-serve butch lesbian. <laughs> Essentially, as a lesbian, I'm attracted to woman-identifying persons, but I personally exhibit myself as kind of androgynously. But you're also still in touch with your feminine side. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, very much still in touch with my feminine side. My pronouns are she and her. For me, I feel like I, I never do anything simply. Um, I feel like when I was growing up, I always identified as like bi because like from a young age, I was like, oh, like, I don't think I'll ever care. Like if a person is like a man or a woman and, you know, now further down the line, I'm like, I don't care if they also are non-binary trans, like it doesn't matter to me. And I know that sort of falls into like pansexual. And I know there's always some debate about like, you know, the terms are like very similar and some people treat them very differently. So I kind of like use them interchangeably. So I'll use like bi, pan and then just queer is like always just like a nice umbrella to cover everything. And it's just like, hey, like I like all sorts of people like I'm not heterosexual. So that kind of just defines it. But I've also like I know other people who feel the same way as I do about like not identifying as well because I think people have realized that labels aren't like one size fits all often like you could try to like conform to something or like feel like you need more freedom so I just like you know to say that I'm a woman who's currently in love with a woman and like that's my identity as well. I think the most important verbiage with our relationship we identify ourselves as a same-sex relationship because even though I'm I identify as gay or lesbian. You know, my lesbian identity does not make Chris wearing a lesbian. She is queer. Yeah, so that's why we do like to use, like, same-sex or queer. Like, sometimes people, you know, will refer to us as a lesbian couple, and that's also fine, too. Like, we're okay with, like, whatever people want to call us. Yeah. But we also just, like, use those terms for ourselves because then it kind of, like, gives the validity to both of our identities and doesn't, like, erase either of them because mm -hmm. it's like, oh, Alex is lesbian and Chris is, like, bi or pan. And, like, those communities, like, feel very strongly about, like, their labels and their titles. So it's, like, always good to kind of, you know, give homage to them yeah. in a way. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think like a lot of people that aren't part of the queer community themselves might feel like overwhelmed sometimes with verbiage and like making sure that they are using the right verbiage for people. Would you say that like saying queer in general is a safe direction to go or like what advice would you give to people who are feeling like anxious about that? I know a lot of people stick to saying like LGBTQ plus because I know there are still people who don't feel like queer has been reclaimed for them. Right. Like sometimes like people still feel like there's a stigma around queer and that they don't like the word. So I know like a lot of people will stick like even websites, tourism, like they'll say LGBTQ plus yeah. and sometimes it'll have like the variations like IA, like there's a bunch of groups that always like to be represented. But as long as you're trying, I don't think anyone will ever like say anything against it. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show before, like that the most important thing is just to like ask someone, ask someone what they're comfortable with. Like it applies to like pronouns as well, like rather than just guess, like just ask. 
Okay, Alex, I heard that some unfortunate things have happened to you guys while traveling. Do you want to share with us? I, we actually abroad quite often play a game. Will Alex be misgendered? (laughs) We keep tally. I, I personally take no offense. Like if someone misgenders me, so be it. That's entirely okay. As a proud woman who takes no offense whatsoever as someone who presents androgynously, I take to have those 15 seconds of privilege really is like, ooh, I love it. But the one place I constantly am misgendered is at TSA. Constantly. Nine and a half out of 10 times, I will always be flagged for TSA because they presume I'm a man. It's almost laughable. I will literally, sometimes I'll just wear, you know, sweatpants just to be comfortable on like a, a red eye or something. And I will always be like flagged at TSA. I will always get pat down and they'll always be like, "Ah, hey, there you. (laughs) So do you want to do this here or do you want to do this in the back room? What is it with TSA? Like they need need some education. They like really need, they need a course or something because like they fuck everything up. I don't get it. It's It's like, it's a joke. We literally budget enough time to go to the airport just so that I could go through TSA. No problem. And then we used to, like, think that maybe she was on some type of, like, watch list for some reason because it it happened every time. And I would always go through first and be waiting for her. And then I think the one time you actually, like, had a woman pat you down. I think you you normally do, right? It's it's always a woman. You you had a woman pat you down and you kind of, I think, asked, like, why, you know, you always set off the scanner. And she was saying, like, oh, it happens to me, too. Like, whenever I wear, like baggy clothes like the scanner I guess identifies it as like there's space in her baggy sweatpants where she could be hiding something because they're like men's pants and you know like the crotch is usually like larger so for some reason it sets off that like oh she's definitely hiding something there but I debunked it because the time after that I wore leggings and it still went off so do you think they're profiling I I feel as probably I mean you take one look at me and it's like oh okay (laughs) Because I've never, it's never happened to me. And like, we're usually right behind each other. And it always, always happens to her. I think there was only one time recently that it didn't. And we were like, we kind of like felt like she had to go back and get it done. (laughs) Because it was just like a rite of passage at that point. Yeah. That was once in what, maybe like 25 times that we've been to an airport together. Uh, What do you think could be done to like, fix this issue with TSA officers? Because like, we've done an episode with um, a trans woman. Her name's Peppermint. Maybe you know her because she was on Peppermint season nine, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've watched that episode a few times. Yeah. And she told us like awful things about her experiences with TSA. And it's, it's always TSA. So I know that queer experience can differ depending on where in the world you live. Um, So for example, in 2000, the Netherlands was the first country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. And in Canada, it was legalized in 2005. And in the USA, it became legalized across all states in 2015, which is actually like wild to me. I did not know that about America, that it wasn't until 2015. And kind of like blew my mind. And these dates only point to marriage. Just because same-sex marriage is legalized, that doesn't mean that there isn't discrimination or anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment in a society. So I wanted to ask you if you can tell us about the queer community's lived experience where you are in the USA. We have both lived in New Jersey our entire lives, but we've grown up in different 
areas of New Jersey. Um, I went to Catholic school growing up. (laughs) Now I'm gay. (laughs) But the reality is, like, to have come from a metropolitan area, on top of living in New Jersey, we both work in New York. And, you know, New York is more or less the birthplace of the modern pride. So it's, it's one of those instances, like, once I came to terms with, like, my identity, I never really looked back because you have that buffer of, like being in a safe place such as like New York City. Yeah, I feel like living in like close to a city or like the exact metropolitan area that we live in being between like New Jersey and New York just fosters such like an environment of like you're accepted because you know you walk into New York City and everyone's kind of just like oh you can be who you are and it's okay here. So I think you know always being in that realm we never really have to think about it too much like mm-hmm. where we live. At all levels of my education in public school, I had access to, like, LGBTQ, like, ally clubs. Like, there was resources everywhere. There were so many people who were out and, like, queer and gay that I knew that was just always normal for me growing up. So I never really thought too much about, like, oh, if I come out, it's going to be a big deal. Like, it was very normal for me. But that also was to show you, like, we both lived in New Jersey and we had, like, two very different experiences growing up. Yeah, back in season one of the show, we interviewed my friend Zach, and he actually mirrored a lot of what you were just saying, which is that like, in the city of Toronto, you're kind of insulated, like it is such a liberal forward thinking city that like, you don't really feel like identities are not normalized. But as soon as you leave the city and go to like more of the country regions of Canada, it can be very different. I've gone on like even like film shoots in like Tennessee and you know Tennessee has like Nashville which is a popular city it has Dollywood which like a lot of gays love Dolly Parton so like they flock to Dollywood (laughs) but like where I was filming was literally in the Cumberland Gap and it was like I did not feel safe to tell any of the crew members that like I was dating a woman for that trip Alex even bought me like a fake ring to wear I forgot about like on my left hand just because we were concerned about like the ratio of men to women on that set and like where I was going because like people would make comments like the locals there like it would come up in conversation about like them not being like for gay people and stuff like that and I sat there and I'm like a very like proactive person like I always want to like defend myself and advocate for others and I was like actually here like I feel like something bad might happen to me if I say this you know so it just shows you that like someone's experience like growing up there if they were gay like I can only imagine like what that is what that experience is like for them. Yeah. So according to the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association, also known as the ILGA, there are still 72 countries where homosexuality is still illegal. That is over a third of the world. In other places, even if homosexuality is an illegal anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment and homophobic rhetoric can impact how and where queer people travel. So I wanted to ask how your queer identity impacted where you travel and if it has. And are there or have there been any destinations you won't travel to because of safety concerns? I mean, like from what you're telling me, it sounds like even within your own country, there are places that you would stay away from. I feel like for this point in time for us, it's not impacted our travels too much, only because the places we immediately wanted to go together, we didn't feel like we're a huge cause for concern. Mm-hmm. When we're doing stuff that's more like national park, you know, genre, we're usually like to ourselves in nature. So we're not 
hugely worried about it. I kind of honestly feel like when we travel somewhere, we are usually more concerned about our safety because we're two women than Mm. being like two queer people. Because I know like you can relate as like a solo traveler, like how much you just have to think about and the situations you can be in. And it's not like, you know, we're two men and like we can present as you know, friends and just as like men. So they always have it like easier. Like we always have in the back of our minds that we're two women. So we're usually more concerned about that than anything else. For myself in particular, I, you know, am inherently, I look androgynous to begin with. So there's always that instance of like, okay, you know, are they going to perceive me as a man or a woman? You know, what works in my benefit if I'm misgendered? Or there's a lot of instances in particular where I feel as though, when I'm misgendered as a man or they perceive me to be a man, it honestly, and I've talked about this with you a lot, the fact that maybe for like 10, 15 seconds before they realize, I have just as much privilege as a man does. Yeah, Actually, right? it's, it's <laughs> cool to think about. Yeah. So I feel like it's easy for us when it comes to like domestic traveling or at least easier. But I feel like we have discussed, you know, visiting more countries together. And that's usually when traveling outside of the U.S., we have more concerns with our our identity or like how Alex presents. And I know, you know, we've talked about like going to Jamaica or Morocco and like the conversations Mm -hmm. we've had about like whether that would be safe for us. I mean, for the pandemic, we had talked about going on a a cruise quite often. I would always look at the itinerary and see if like Jamaica is on there you know uh, we grew up with the you know Bob Marley one love commercials and you know but the the reality is it's one of the most homophobic countries in the western hemisphere because I'm androgynous like how much of my gender is able to like override or like the way I present does that override my queerness like does my whiteness override my queerness there's a lot of instances that are like kind of puzzle pieces that play like are you it. experiencing other forms of like privilege that might actually cancel out where you may not hold so much privilege it's sort of like putting together a puzzle piece that's that's exactly it yeah so then if you were to consider going to somewhere like jamaica do you think that if you were able to do the research in advance there would be a way for you to feel comfortable going or is it one of those situations where the anxiety and fear of what might happen or could happen at that place might just not be worth um, making the trip I feel as though I'm still trying to find the answer to it because I want to still be in a point where I can show up for those communities, but all the while keep my safety into account. You know, if I'm able to use my privilege as a queer traveler, how am I going to show up necessarily for like the local queer population? Yeah, that's definitely something we go back and forth like all the time, because when you have a situation like Morocco as well, like homosexuality is like illegal and punishable by jail time there. Like and of course, queer people are going to exist everywhere. So, you know, that they're there. I know a lot of people will say that, you know, they won't go to those countries until, you know, same sex is like recognized or if it's, you know, legalized. But like you still do need to find a way to support those communities. And like it's still places like that we want to see and experience. Mm -hmm. So that's like something we don't have full answers to. It's something we're still trying to figure out what we can do because it is really a tricky question. Because how much do we ride on our privilege? How do we show up for those communities? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like we've talked about this before on the show, pretty much anywhere in the world that you want to go, like you will always be able to find some moral reason that you should not go there and like support their 
economy, pretty much anywhere, there's something. And I think you make a really good point. And it's something that Zach actually said too. He was like, I have traveled to places where like morally, as a queer person, it might not make sense that I go and support this economy, but I make a point of supporting the communities there while I'm in that place. And so I think there's something like very powerful about that too. Okay, so I wanted to touch on an article that I pulled up. It was on the site Nomadic Matt, and it's written by blogger Adam Goffman. And in it, he points out that traveling as a queer individual isn't always dangerous. Instead, it's a matter of having to know when and where one can disclose one's sexuality through words or through actions and also knowing the dangers or potential consequences of doing so. This is something straight people or hetero couples basically never have to think about. So when traveling, how do you feel about having to carefully judge how much of your sexual identity you can be forthcoming about? How do you decide how much you feel comfortable expressing? Typically, as a rule of thumb, we don't out ourselves to strangers. I mean, it's an instance of I present as androgynous. Chris can sometimes or typically does get away with going stealth you know i really think it's something that's mentally taxing because it's always at the forefront of our minds with every interaction we have whether we're together or separate and you know it could come up in conversation at any time so it's a lot of holding a conversation with someone while also having like a completely separate narrative running in your head trying to gauge how much information to give out or withhold and it's something i think I particularly resent because, you know, I've dated men before and I never had to think about that while I was dating men and traveling with a partner who was like a male. And it's just so frustrating that I have to now. Are they going to ask us if we want two beds when we ask for a room with one? Like a lot of times I think when we have to like gauge the interaction is always when we check into a hotel because, you know, they're usually like, oh, why are you coming? Like, where, what are you doing? And it's just like... How many beds would you like, you know? Yeah, so we're always trying to figure it out. But it usually will come up naturally or someone will see how we present and they might make an assumption and then start to shift the conversation a little bit that way. Like when we were in Puerto Rico earlier this year, we actually had the most lovely interaction with a bartender at a restaurant we were eating at and I think he just kind of knew based on our interactions and even like brought up like my mom's a lesbian and like she likes to go to this place and this bar and you guys should check it out and it's really nice and like we never disclosed anything I Mm -hmm. think he just knew and wanted to be like I see you guys and like it's cool and like let me give you some tips on like how to have a great trip yeah I still have his number on my phone. (laughs) That's awesome. And actually, like you've touched a little bit on the concerns that I've read people have about showing affection. I read an article in which this woman named Christine Johnson, um, who's a digital media and marketing professional, she says that while traveling, I'm rarely affectionate with my partner in public because I fear the possibility of backlash, negative attention, and possible dangerous confrontations. And a study by Virgin Holidays reinforced this concern. They didn't provide the parameters or the details of the focus group for the study. So keep in mind, I'm not sure how reliable the study was, but it claimed that only 5% of queer couples surveyed by Virgin Holidays said that they feel comfortable showing affection to their partner abroad. And that's like wild because that's compared to 84% of straight couples. Is this like a conversation that you also have to have then? Like, okay, what's what's the stance on affection when we're in public in a new place? 
I we were actually discussing this a couple of days ago, and I actually thought it was so lovely when you said this to me oh. that literally you've always regarded all of our trips to be inherently romantic because it's the two of us. <laughs> I know, I know how gay. <laughs> I definitely know like a lot of people have this conversation with their partner and some people are more comfortable than others when it comes to showing affection in public as a queer couple. I think for us what it comes down to is that as queer travelers, you're kind of always like a traveling representation mm -hmm. for like the community and like a big part of it is always advocating for yourself in everything that you do and that includes like showing affection so we always try to like carry ourselves as normal in a new place unless you know we have signals that like it's not a good idea or won't be safe right because we just want to be our normal selves and showcase that to others and then it might make any queer people that are in that area feel more comfortable as well because we always love to hold hands like walking around a city that's just natural and then like for our instagram we'll take a lot of pictures and they'll often be in very affectionate poses in public so in broad daylight yeah you know so everyone you know can see that we're a couple and that we're interacting with each other and you kind of just have to do it you know, just for romantic reasons, because you want to. But there's also a part of it that's like visibility. Yeah. And like you just need to show that it's normal and that it happens and that these people exist kind of. You know, we'll see families and like you'll see little kids and like you kind of hope that those parents go away. And like if the kids ask questions like that just starts like a whole conversation. Like we've always just advocated for transparency in all things that we do. So, I mean, it is true by being ourselves, just our... Typical Chris and Alex, just by interacting with one another, maybe that is the catalyst. That's the dialogue for someone to start having those conversations, whether it's, you know, with other people or like within themselves. Yeah. So that's really amazing. Then you can use travel to advocate like outside of your home community in New Jersey. So recently we shared an episode about mental health and travel, and in it we touched on how travel can be more overwhelming if you identify as part of a group that experiences discrimination or violence. And I've talked about this tons on this podcast about how identifying as a woman has come with heightened anxiety when I travel. So I wanted to ask if you have any tips for how you manage anxiety or nervousness when you're traveling somewhere new and ways that you guys keep yourself feeling safe. I mean, I think I personally have always vouched for travel accountability. I, whenever we go anywhere, I'll usually, my mother is like a perfect example. I'll always tell her the address. I'll tell her what we're doing, our agenda. Just knowing that if, you know, God forbid anything were to happen to us, there's always that like outside person that's not traveling with us that knows exactly where we are, what we're doing to some extent. Honestly, research has also just researching things and I don't know, maybe we're... <laughs> you know, overly attentive with research, but it does, you know, for us personally, it's always worked out. Yeah, I feel like for us, it comes down to like, you know, if you've done the research, then you should take comfort in that and not kind of try to manifest a situation that might not happen. So if mm -hmm. you spend like your whole time, you know, being concerned with what could happen, it's definitely going to detract from your experience. Just be prepared for if it does like you know that you have something in your back pocket in case a situation arises and I know something else that we do is we'll bring like TSA compliant like self-defense items on us to certain trips like if we are very concerned just so that in a very very worst case scenario like we have something to protect ourselves but I feel like that's something 
you can relate to like as a woman as well. Like it's not just as queer identifying people, but you kind of want to have as many resources as you can. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the biggest thing, wine opener. TSA compliant. Oh. And, yeah. Like think of it. You whip it open and it's got the little bit on it. There you go. I never thought of that. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, I can share my one little tidbit. And my some of my friends are like, this is a little over the top. But if I'm in a hotel room by myself, I create a sound trap. So you pile like a couple things up against the door so that if someone were to open the door, it creates a sound. So you get like a little heads up that someone is intruding in your room. I've seen the, um, what is it, the, the glass on the handle. Like if the handle like jerks in the night and it falls to the ground. Yeah, well, we should yep. start doing Sound some stuff. <laughs> well, there you go. So, okay, I have I did a lot of research, so I'm sorry I'm bombarding <laughs> you with all this. No, this is wonderful. Like Google. <laughs> I like to come prepared. Um, okay, so in a report by the World Tourism Organization, it was mentioned that welcoming queer travelers is more than just good for business. It can, can create positive social impact, which we've touched on a little bit. They said that all businesses and destinations seeking to attract LGBTQ plus travelers have a duty to recognize the link between social acceptance, government legislation, and the effects of these on their business. So I've talked about this episode a little bit, the one that we did in season one with our guest, Zach. So he told us that he doesn't automatically skip destinations that might be intolerant. Instead, he researches so that he can travel there safely, and he puts concerted effort into finding the LGBTQ plus community there so that he can support them. I wanted to ask if there are other ways that you think travel can be a tool for creating positive social change for the queer community. I think it all kind of has a chain reaction. And I think if people really think about it, like they realize it's like a domino effect, because if a country or destination is promoting queer tourism, more people are going to travel there. And then if more people travel there, it increases the visibility of the community to the locals, while mm -hmm. also like encouraging the local queers that live there to be more open. Right. And then a more queer presence overall is going to create more public and outspoken like agitation for LGBTQ plus rights and all of the intersections those people have because they usually have a lot. And usually like members of the queer community are like really willing to fight for other marginalized groups. So once you have that happening, there's going to be like a greater focus on the rights of all of those communities that are going to develop into like a fight for positive legislation like all around. And it just then more businesses are going to see more traffic because more people feel comfortable going there and they don't have to ask that question, you know, of, you know, should I go to a place that doesn't support queers or should I go there? Like, it's going to be a conversation that they're going to have, whether they like it or not. Yeah, like, especially if a city is like accustomed to having a pride event, like the local community around there and the businesses, you know, they usually all try to like jump in their support because they know it's going to be good for business. But on a greater scale, like, people seeing that as being normal and like what a wonderful celebration it is like yeah. they're just like oh like these people are cool like maybe we <laughs> should think differently about you know what we're doing legislatively <laughs> they also tip well <laughs> <laughs> and i and i think like we've seen the the product of this here in toronto actually because like i'm sure you've heard of toronto pride it is massive it attracts hundreds of thousands of tourists every year but in recent years like it's shifted from being purely like celebratory which was very important in that cultural moment to becoming something that's more political and so now like a lot of pride events are focused on legislation and politics 
and they have this like focus on making like tangible change that you really feel like in the city and in the country you're around. I feel as though it's one of those instances where the queer community is always watching. So if you're, you know, if you are standing up for the queer community outside of the month of June, you know, people will eat that up and they're watching. Yeah, the queer community likes to hold people accountable, but like they also just like any instance of someone supporting them because it means a lot to see it. So literally, if you say that your city is LGBTQ friendly and you want them to come, like they will flock like they (laughs) they will come in droves and, you know, take over your city. But We've talked about it a bit, but besides, like, having a pride parade, what would you say makes a country gay-friendly? Yeah. It's funny because it can often be, like, the smallest things that, like, queer people pick up on. So it's, like, if you're walking around a place and you see that they have, like, even tiny little rainbow flags, like, in storefront windows... We pick up on that instantly. The amount of like validation in that too. You're, and then that makes you also more apt to like support that business because you're like, oh, well, they support me. So I'm going to go get coffee from there rather than somewhere else. Mm. And it could be things like a rainbow crosswalk, which a lot of cities have like started doing and they leave them up like outside the month of June, which is amazing. And I mean, everyone likes rainbows. I think so they always make like a city look a little bit nicer but it's it's it really is like the small things like that some cities will have neighborhoods that you can you know find through a web search online where it's, I know Seattle had like Capitol Hill that whole area is like considered a neighborhood and you're just like oh well I know a lot of queers obviously live here and very openly so that's like a safe place for me to travel to yeah but it's also it's our partial responsibility for not only researching those places, but also uplifting those places on social media to bring in those people to see that as well. And I think it's also if you're keeping track of like a destination's tourism board, if you look on their website, they might have a tab that's like, oh, like LGBTQ plus. And they might have like, oh, certain like tour groups you can do at that destination. If you can see that they're kind of trying to target that niche and support and bring in that traffic, then that's also usually a really good sign. Mm. Okay, so you mentioned social media, which is great, because I think that social media and tech platforms have created like really amazing safe spaces for marginalized travelers, not just to connect, but to share information. And you guys are building an amazing community on Instagram yourselves around queer awareness and issues and travel. So in what ways have digital communities like your own positively affected you? I feel as though ever since we started doing Instagram more so, just I feel like the basis of our trips or where we want to go stems from where we've seen other queer travelers go and actually interchanging and sharing information with one another, like tips on going here or going there. Gosh, I feel like so much of ourselves is like Instagram. I don't know. (laughs) It's clear she's the eloquent one and I'm just here for a good time. (laughs) No, Alex is very, very eloquent. Uh, Don't let her fool you. But I think we didn't know what we were signing up for when we made like our joint account on Instagram like we thought like what we were doing was going to be like to post about like our adventures together and our travels because we we're like that's really cool and also people seem to love our love like friends and coworkers we had so we were like oh like that's a really you know thing that we haven't seen a lot of 
not knowing that there was a lot of it and like on her. Instagram. <laughs> so we kind of didn't realize there was this whole travel queer niche community like on Instagram. Like we used to just use it to post pictures, not like, you know, for business or to like learn as a resource because you don't think that when you think of Instagram, you know, you don't think it's could really help you plan a trip or something like that. So we really look to like our friends and like other creators on there because they're sharing their firsthand experiences. Like a lot of people have blogs or they write it in their Instagram captions and you know that you can trust their experience because they are also queer. You know, they're in the same space. So you can go to like the information they're giving you and really better base off your trip about like how safe it's going to be or what you should do or what you should avoid or how open and out you can be like you can't put a price on that like firsthand experience. Everybody in the LGBTQ spectrum, each of our experiences is different, vastly different, especially in terms of traveling. But if you take their firsthand experience and use that as like a, you know, the nosedive, the diving board point to start your research from that, you know. I really like your point about the diversity of experience that you see on social media. Um, this is something that I can relate to as well. Just being able to find in the travel community online people that very closely, um, that you can very closely relate to is very special. And it's hard to find that in other forms of media, I find, like outside of social media. And to that same point, we've actually fostered a lot of like even international friendships as well that have been like catalysts for like going to go see them in like Canada or something of that sort. So it's great. <laughs> yeah. Give us a shout when you come to Toronto. We actually did for the first time last November. And it was because we stayed with friends we made with on Instagram. To that point. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and we really liked, we were told to say it Toronto. Toronto. Like that's how you're supposed to Toronto. say it. <laughs> Yeah, there's no second T. Um, okay, so while we're on this topic, are there any specific resources or communities you'd like to shout out? Some of the resources that we've used specifically, um, we've used IGLTA, we've used Queerty, Gay Cities as well. Just going through their websites and like seeing their resources have like been like good opportunities. And once you find one, you usually find like a bunch more because. Mm. I know on Instagram alone, and they usually have like Twitter resources and also like websites as well. There's like Travel Gay Women, Gay Travel, Vacationist USA, which used to be Visit Gay USA. So they still have all of those resources on there. There's like Out Adventures, there's Fab Stays, which is kind of like helping you navigate Airbnb and making sure like your host is like all for you and you don't have to worry about do I disclose, you know, my orientation or my identity at all. Like you can't really put a price on those resources. And we're just so happy that there's so many of them and we just keep seeing more of them all like congregated together. <laughs> awesome. We can link all of them in the show notes. Okay. So before we wrap up, what is your post-pandemic bucket list looking like? Oh, man. <laughs> We've shifted a lot of our travel. Honestly, the pandemic has really kind of been like this catalyst for us starting to venture into like domestic travel to the point at which I think we're kind of leaning toward like a digital nomad lifestyle. The trip to Arizona that we had spoken of earlier kind of was also like kind of like the catalyst for our outdoor enthusiast lifestyle. So we really want to go next 
The next big trip we would love to go to is Utah to do the big five. I feel like mine aligns with yours a lot because it's usually trips that we want to do together. And she's used like the whole pandemic to just plan all of these trips. So like when they say go, like we can just go. I'm ready. (laughs) But we would love to like go back to doing other countries. Like I know we really want to do Greece. We've been Mm. really missing like England and the UK, but we just don't know like when when any of these things are going to be fully possible. So we're trying to plan like the domestic trips and, you know, we also really miss Miami. Mm-hmm. We usually go to Miami every year. And this was the first year, like, we couldn't go. So it's just, uh, we'll go anywhere. Like, honestly, it doesn't have to be a big <laughs> trip. We just, we'll go four hours and call it a vacation at this point <laughs> if it's safe. <laughs> I know. I drive one hour out of our city and I'm like, I'm traveling. Because, <laughs> like, I forget what it's like to be on a plane. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We can't even remember exactly what it's like to be on a plane. It's been so long now. Yeah. I have to say, like, it is a nice... None of this pandemic is good. Like, absolutely none of it. But it has um, made me appreciate, like, my local community a lot more. I don't know. I was always so focused on traveling internationally. I think I, like, really overlooked my own province here in Canada. And there is, like, so much beautiful stuff in your province and in Canada like from stuff we've been seeing people you know do the same thing like exploring more we just see like pictures and videos and like Canada is very high on our list to go back to when when we are allowed (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us this has been really enlightening and fun and I also want to thank you for just being willing to share with us about your experience I know that that can be like emotionally tough so we really appreciate you uh taking the time to do that oh we appreciate you thank you thank you for for having us you know we've been using like a lot of the past weeks to like dive more into like episodes of yours that we haven't seen yet and i just really like appreciate the space that you're cultivating on here because i really haven't seen a lot of it other places and that's part of why we started following you i can't remember i was trying to think today exactly of how it happened i think somebody shared you as a resource for like sustainability And it was just so cool to finally like tap into someone talking about things that like I haven't heard of before. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) That's so nice to hear. Thank you. Um, Before before you go, do you want to share where our Apalka Pals can find you? You can follow us on Instagram at Burrito and Tortilla. And on TikTok, you can follow us at Chris and Alex. And we're also on YouTube at Chris and Alex and Facebook at, at Chris and Alex. <laughs> it's, it's usually Burrito and Tortilla or Chris and Alex and uh, you'll find us. <laughs> Just look up the gay agenda. <laughs> Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr. I hope this episode meant as much to you as it did to me. If you enjoyed it, go ahead and leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.